pension funds that benchmark themselves to indexes, and it's not just U.S., it's not just Europe. I mean, look at Asia index. Because there's a lot of heavy tech names, look today, look, benchmarking yourself to that may not be representative of what you want to actually achieve. If you want exposure to U.S., is owning five stocks really the exposure of the entire U.S. you are? So we're diversifying in those sort of ways. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Elizabeth Burton, the Chief Investment Officer of the Employees Retirement System of the State of Hawaii. Elizabeth oversees $19 billion in pension fund assets and is also on the board of directors of the Chartered Alternative Investment Association. She was named one of Chief Investment Officer Magazine's Top 40 Under 40, and in addition, Elizabeth received the Industry Innovation Award for Under $20 Billion Plans by Chief Investment Officer Magazine and listed in the Power 100 in 2019. In 2020, she was added to the list of top 1% of institutional investors by the Trusted Insight, and she has made several appearances on CNBC in order to address the state of the markets since the start of the pandemic. Listen in as Elizabeth shares her insights into what it means to manage a state pension fund and how institutional investors view the markets and assets. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with Elizabeth Burton, the Chief Investment Officer of the Employees Retirement System for the state of Hawaii. And number one, what a great state, right? I would love to be there myself right now. And two, in full disclosure, her husband, Michael Cottett was a very good friend of my brother-in-law, Keith, and their family by default is a very close relations to my wife's family. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, listen, I, I'm here in New York right now. It's a little dreary, but I can only imagine, you know, I've not been to Hawaii yet, but I hope to be there one day soon. So uh, leave some sunshine for me, please. I <laughs> <Well>, do. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners and our audience a little bit about your path to becoming the CIO, the chief investment officer for the retirement system for the state of Hawaii? Sure. Uh, So it wasn't planned. Although if I could have picked sort of a perfect plan, I think I probably did it (laughs) because I have a background in a lot of different things. I've had a lot of different jobs. So I had no interest in finance when I was younger because my dad was on Wall Street and is a finance professor. So I had hoped to do nothing like that. (laughs) But first year, I guess uh, one of my last years of college, I was at a conference with my dad and a hedge fund I met in the lobby because my dad was speaking and I've heard his speeches a thousand times, so I didn't want to hear it. (laughs) Offered me a job to come out there for the summer as an intern and it was in Santa Barbara. So my draw wasn't finance at all. It was, oh, I can surf and live in Santa Barbara. I was going to say another (laughs) terrible place to live, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I ended up starting there in marketing and I think that was an interesting way to learn about the products they were selling. I thought it was interesting, but marketing was not for me. And I didn't feel like I had a good enough grasp of the underlying concepts. I did take statistics and math in college, but not a ton of finance. I think I took the economics of competitive sports senior year. 
So I went out, full, I accepted an offer full-time, transitioned to the portfolio analysis team as the first year, spent about a year in Santa Barbara. It was a fund of funds model. So again, I felt like it was too far removed from the market. I really wasn't learning as much. They were really sweet to me and offered to help me move on to somewhere that a little bit more neat to it. Little did we know, this was 2005. So I got a job trading mortgage-backed pass-throughs in San Francisco. <laughs> right. So that was the first time I really got involved in finance. And from there, I've had, obviously, that kind of... I actually quit before it blew up and transitioned to working at a hedge fund and fund-to-fund model based out of South Africa. Did that for a couple of years. Went back to business school right around the time I met Mike. Went to Chicago. And then after Chicago, Mike said, move to Baltimore, lose me forever. <laughs> it was kind of hard being in finance at the time because there just wasn't a lot in Baltimore I wanted to do. There's like Mason and Morgan Stanley and T. Rowe, but that wasn't... I was mostly in hedge funds. Right. So I decided to try M&A, payments M&A. And so I did that. And it's also a consulting business for a couple of years. Really liked it. But going from being a trader where you you know got kind of set hours and you're out as soon as like the market's done to working yep. in M&A where you are never done. It is all day, every day. It was a hard adjustment. I did it for three years. And then I thought my dad's a PhD economist. I thought I wanted to go get a PhD in economics. So I actually worked under an economist slash lawyer as an expert witness building. I had majored in statistics, econometrics, and finance at the University of Chicago. So I spent a couple of years as the econometrician behind the papers that they were distributing. I loved it. When I had kids, it was really hard to meet deadlines for court dates and what have you. And so I decided that I'd try uh, working at Maryland State Retirement System. My dad had been a consultant to some pensions in the prior life. And he had said, look, this might be a place where you may be able to see your kids at night. Right. And so I went to work for Maryland as the head of their hedge fund portfolio, which was about a $5 billion book. And I was also the head of risk for the whole $55 billion plan. Wow. And then, so how did the opportunity come up for the state of Hawaii from there? So funny. So I was reminding Mike about this the other day. So first of all, I loved my job at Maryland. It was nothing about that. It's to this day, my favorite job. But there was this, in January, they had let their former CIO go, January of 2018. And I wrote, forwarded an email to Mike as a joke. I said, ha ha, I want to move to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) So the shocking part about this is um, emailed them. And said, here's my background. I have a great risk background. I'm head of a hedge fund portfolio. I know you guys don't do hedge funds. Maybe I could help you with that. I've done equities. I've done fixed income. And we're location neutral. So let me know. So they didn't respond for a couple months. And eventually they got back to me. And I think there was about 100 candidates. And it was went from 100 to 40, 20. And so at one point, we were down to the last four. I said, Mike, I think we should fly out there and see if we actually like <laughs> We flew out there. I interviewed and got the job the same day, which was really cool. Wow. Wow. So it was kind of fate. But yeah, that first email, I reminded him of that. I was like, how crazy? We were just joking. <laughs> That's funny. I guess it was all meant to be then, right? It yeah, exactly. Uh, definitely meant to be. I mean, just from an email. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you have, as the CIO, you have a, a very large role as a fiduciary for the state pension system, which we're fiduciaries for our clients and we're not 19 billion, but we're growing and we don't take that lightly. And you can't obviously either because you're doing this for a lot of people that are relying on you. What are the goals for the fund? Because a lot of our listeners are used to the retail side, people striving for retirement. They're people who are in the retirement system. So now we're talking to somebody who's managing that portfolio for other employees. What kind of goals do you set out for the fund? Sure. So great question. I think one thing to point out about public pensions is they are usually run by a board and it is mostly 
the goals of the board that I execute on. So the asset allocation at Hawaii is very different from Maryland, and that's because the board has determined very different goals. So in Hawaii, it is a different plan primarily because one, it's half the size of Maryland, but two, it's only 55% funded which means not to get too complicated, but the investment returns and the stability of the investment returns matter much more to secure retirement benefits out in the future. So I wouldn't call our plan necessarily super conservative, but as a fiduciary, it is way more important for me to protect the assets than to try to knock you know, the cover off the ball and hit the lights out in terms of investing. So I think that's the primary difference from a personal investor where you're focused on what your ROI is and, and your return and here, I'm really trying to mitigate the downside so that this is there's longevity. Return of the money, not necessarily return on the money, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. So going back to your background, what you said earlier about your experience in the mortgage industry, right? When things were on the way up before everything kind of went awry in 2007, 2008, 2009. Sure. How does that play a part in your risk objectives? And I mean, does that still stick with you from a risk perspective when you're managing or talking about investments in regards to the pension system? I think certainly. So I'm not that not that old. I'm in my 30s. But if you're younger than me, this most recent crisis is really the the one you've traded through. There was the taper tantrum and a couple other bouts. But if you weren't in 08 or 09, it's been fairly benign the last decade. And so I think it was really helpful for me to have lived through something that was sort of crazy. That said, these two episodes have rebounded pretty quickly. So I rely very much on the insight of the people who were, I work with who have been around you know, in the 90s and, and 80s and, and seen other environments. But it, it has been helpful, I think, mostly from a liquidity standpoint. I think more people are more focused on liquidity than ever and on correlations. And co- as you know, correlations can change. Right. And I think that's a massively important part of our asset allocation. So I think those are the things that have kind of lived with me that in a crisis, everything everything goes to a one correlation usually. And actually, you saw that in March of last year, gold traded off you know, initially and, and treasuries kind of suffered initially. So those, those are lessons that I think if you're new to the game, you really haven't seen, you can only read about. And that's kind of like going skiing if you just watch YouTube videos. <laughs> right, right. That's a good, uh, that's a very good analogy, right? <laughs> yeah. So how is the approach taken to managing these funds, right? You said that you have this board who is basically designing the allocation, and then you're basically executing on what their goals and objectives are. So let's say, you know, they tell you that this is their allocation. And obviously, there's a concern level on your end because they're only 55% funded, which means they're, they're only covering a little over half of what their future obligations are. So how do you go about looking out into the future and building this allocation? Is it a stocks, bonds and cash type portfolio? Are there other things that are brought into the mix? How do you kind of filter down through that allocation approach? I don't know about your daily work, but I imagine it's a little bit similar where you gauge someone's risk tolerance and what's important to them. And then you kind of build the allocation from there. So for here, like I said earlier, we are focused on an income type component, which is really interesting right now, because if you think of fixed income where the mind normally goes for that coupon like steady return, yields aren't going to get you very much right now. I know we rallied today and you know whatnot, but we do do equities. I don't think it is really possible in history to look back and see not making money without some allocation to equities, despite having been in a favorable environment for fixed income in the last couple of decades. Equities in all forms, so private equity, public equities, global portfolio, fixed income global as well. And then we do real estate. 
infrastructure. We do not have a direct commodities allocation. That is something that I did ask to change about the asset allocation. I'm not the biggest fan of long-only commodity allocation. I can go into that if you'd like. Um, But in general, we don't want to invest in things where we have to know what the price is going to be in 10 years because we don't know what the future holds. And so the best bet we can kind of hedge with is a diversified portfolio. So we really try to diversify our exposures as much as possible. If we were more funded, we could take a little bit more risk, a little bit more exposure to the growth, U.S. growth markets and equities. Um, But we're not really in that position. That said, we're not going to go to zero equities. We have a large component to be sure. But I would guess if you looked at us versus peers, we're much more conservative in our equity book. For our listeners, right? To become more funded, you can either satisfy that gap through returns, which clearly you're not looking to take that risk or the board's not willing to take that risk of increased risk profile for those returns. So what are the other avenues? What's holding you back from having more funding? Is there a shrinkage in the employee pool from the state employee system? Where's that shortfall coming from predominantly? So on the return side, I'd have to hit like 11% every year without fail for a number of years to ever... Well, you mean you can't do that? Yeah, right. (laughs) I know it sounds so easy, right? And that's honestly the reason we're funded like that was not because of a loss in returns. So the way the pension system works is employers contribute a certain amount, state contributes a certain amount, and the rest is made up in investment terms. Well, when the state had some problems in prior crises, they did not... I wasn't... This was long ago. They did not contribute their share. So... It's like if you think about a scale. So if one side of the scale is not balancing, then it tips in the other direction. So that's sort of what happens there. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens to a lot of states now post-COVID, where states are really, maybe the stimulus will help, but states that depend heavily on things like tourism may still suffer and they may not be able to contribute. So in Hawaii, our contribution rates are some of the highest in the country. We have some components that contribute as much as 45%, which means if you hire a police officer, you are contributing almost another half of a person into his retirement benefits, which is an employer is very expensive. Right. But it was a necessary evil to try to fix the funding. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough balance, right? Especially if you're mandated with not, you know, you need to have that money there for your employees who retire. And, you know, if you have that uh, effect. So obviously COVID, like you mentioned, is going to affect other states with regard to ones that rely heavily on tourism. Where I'm in New York, I'm sure there's going to be a big impact here as well with shutting down Times Square and the Broadway shows and the sporting events, et cetera. So how is this going to affect a state like Hawaii? What is the kind of outlook as far as COVID's effect on the state going forward? If you're already at 55%, is there some kind of projection saying that you may be even less funded like that in the near future? So it's complicated, as you know. A lot of it depends on a, a bunch of other assumptions. If they continue the contributions, we should be okay. If they don't, I mean, we got pre-funded contributions last month for the whole summer. So that's a positive sign and we're appreciative of it. I think it might've had something to do with some support from the government and the Biden administration. In terms of, but your other question is is something a lot of people don't think about. (laughs) People's jobs and the economy in general matter very much because if people are leaving the island, then we have all these liabilities without ever getting the benefit of the contribution. So the liability side keeps going up and it doesn't kind of keep up. So they've made some adjustments to to certain types of calculations that go into what benefits people receive. It's very tricky because right now is the time when people really need those benefits. Most particularly, um, we don't have the healthcare system, that's a system, but they need those. And 
actually some worry that that may be tapered back a little bit on the contribution right. side because they're kind of slightly in a better position than we are because they're new. But in general, we care very much about the economy because that definitely factors into our plan. But you have to be careful on that because one might think, okay, well, then maybe the pension system could invest locally and maybe the pension system could buy up businesses and buildings. You're doubling your exposure. Right. And you're becoming more risky just by doing that. Although you're helping, there's more inherent risk you're, you're basically taking on by doing that. Exactly. And you so then you don't have necessarily a diversified portfolio. Not only that, it can get very tricky to manage those assets from a fiduciary perspective. So imagine if we decided to take on um, a bunch of mortgage debt or help people buy houses. What if they default? It's not a great look for your retirement system to go after and take the homes back from right. people whose retirement you're protecting. Right. Right? So it's a very delicate balance, but we do try to, I wouldn't say like we try to find investments that contribute directly to Hawaii, but if it's a win-win for everybody, we're really excited about that as long as we can keep our exposure you know, diversified and smart. Yeah. As the whole COVID situation, has that shifted your investment focus at all in terms of strategy going forward or has it really yeah. just remained on the same path that you were pre-COVID? Yes and no. So I think number one, we don't invest in fads or things like having come from Chicago. I really have a hard time investing in things that I don't think are grounded in economic theory over the long term. So that part doesn't change. But what does change is the outlook for infrastructure maybe comes a little bit more interesting under a Biden administration where he's saying he's going to put a lot of money to work there. Renewables becomes more interesting under this administration. So we have more of a focus on those. Industrial was a weaker part of our portfolio, not from performance, just from allocations too. So that might become more interesting with opportunity zone legislation coming into effect. In terms of equities, slightly, because I think Europe has become a little bit more interesting than it has in the past. You know, we're really tech heavy here in the US, not so much in Europe. Maybe you get more of a quality value bent and maybe. Maybe this time things will turn around. But I think in general, pension funds that benchmark themselves to indexes, and it's not just US, it's not just Europe. I mean, look at Asia index. Because there's a lot of heavy tech names, look today, look at the markets today, driving those. Benchmarking yourself to that may not be representative of what you want to actually achieve. If you want exposure to US, is owning five stocks really the exposure of the entire US you are? Market, right. So we're diversifying in those sort of ways. So it sounds like not really much has changed from a standpoint of the COVID situation. It sounds like it's more from a standpoint of the political landscape and how policy may be shifting in the months or coming years has really had more of an emphasis on that strategy shift. Well, I think that's right. One caveat on that. So in terms of companies that'll come out of COVID benefiting, like exporting countries, Yeah, I think that there's something interesting there that we're probably going to focus on. But I'll say that I've been asked this question before, and I think the problem with COVID is how economies come out of COVID very much depends on their politicians at the local level, like your school superintendent, right? Right. And who your mayor is. And that is really hard to aggregate up for a whole country. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to be careful because even when we think things are progressing, as you can see in the news, you get some information that, oh, maybe they'll be stalled, maybe there'll be a holdback. So we still got a lot to play there. I think there will be winners and losers there, but we just kind of wait it out and see how that shakes out. And I think deglobalization as a result of COVID does not happen overnight. Mexico may be like a new, more important strategic partner for us going forward, but it's not going to happen next year. Right. It's going to take time, just like everything else, right? Yes, exactly. 
So, you know, you talked about private equity earlier, and I think that there's this perception by the average investor that institutions, pension funds have access to potentially investments that aren't available to everybody. Does your pension fund or in general, do pension funds have or look for access to more non-traditional assets than individuals do, or is it about the same? Probably, yes. Part of that happens to be our investment horizon. First, for perpetual. So one of our sources of strengths is that, well, hopefully perpetual, is that we can invest for a really, really long term, long time, which most private market investments, you're locking up your capital for 10, 12 years, maybe even longer with extensions, right? So that kind of fits our profile and it can help us weather some of these bumpy rides in the equity markets. So we do try to source investments there. We also have larger teams typically than an individual to have eyes on on these sorts of investments and monitor them because they can be really tricky. But I will say, I think people think it's really easy for us to get access to all sorts of these <laughs> private market investments. It's not. It's very competitive. If you think about right. it, we're twenty billion, but Calister's Calpers, you know, are huge, hundreds of billions of dollars, and all over the world, Canadian funds, Australian funds, European funds. So it can actually be hard getting access to the best. But what I do think is interesting is that this was so not talked about for so long, and I think the GameStop trades, SPAC trades, all this kind of brought it to the forefront, and I. I it has always been a strange thing to me that qualified investors were just a monetary amount, right? And right. that's always been an interesting thing. So I think giving more people access to, to investments is always great. You can't just assume because we're large, we know what we're doing in those either, right? So Yeah, I mean, I listen, I see some pushback from investors who say they want access to these non-traditional assets. And then when you tell them, well, that means you have to give up this capital for 10, 12, yeah. 15 years... And they don't really comprehend that that means that they really cannot touch it for that period of time. Like, not at all. Right. And then they hear that and they're like, well, I don't want to do that. Like everybody else, we all want our cake and eat it too, right? We want to be able to get the better access. We want to hopefully get a better return, but we also want access to the money when we need or want it, which yeah. you guys are willing and able to give up that access because you have that long-term time horizon and can chart it out. So I, yeah. I think that puts you in a much better position. What type do you guys, uh, meaning the state pension fund, do you have exposure to non-traditional assets and what types have you exposed the uh, pension system to? Quite a bit. So before I got here, they had a long history in real estate and private equity. So in private equity, venture, buyout, everything, and some private debt, not, not a ton. I would say versus other state pension plans, they were probably less invested in alternatives. They were kind of on the lower end of side things, but they've been been ramping it up slightly. You have to be careful about that too. As you know, you can't just need vintage year diversification, meaning you can't just throw your money in those all at one year. You have to spread them out over time to give yourself the best bet of capturing some long-term alphas there. So across the spectrum, it is very complicated. It is one part of the area where we mean a lot on outside experts because it's also very hard to manage. So it's not like you just go out and pick one private equity fund. You need right. several a year and over time and to monitor all those underlying investments. Those are thousands and thousands of investments just in that one portfolio. So it's very complicated. And real estate, as you can imagine, for an island is also a very sacred and important thing. So we've always had a, an eye for for real estate in our portfolio. Interestingly enough, we were underweight some of the sectors that were hardest hit by COVID. So that ended up being a pretty good thing for us. And I get questions like, why are you still allocating to real estate when things like are going crazy in New York? My response is always, well, did you want to buy at the the highs? Right. 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 
Well, we're in the one industry in the investment world that it's kind of people do opposite, which is they're buying at the highs because they're getting tied up in that euphoria and then they're selling at the lows, which is the complete opposite of what you should be doing. But you need to have what you're talking about, which is a specified process in order to be able to go out and do those things. Very much so. And in fact, we're suspect to that too. When things sell off, we get nervous just like everybody else. But we have rules for when we're going to rebalance and we have target levels. And so we actually rebalanced several times last year. We actually continued, meaning that we buy low and we're luckily rebalancing from the highs. And that worked out really well for us. I think it worked out really well for a lot of people. Sure. This year, we have to have had to keep rebalancing for a different reason because equities keep running. Right. And so we need to keep making sure we're not overweight because mean reversion, those will theoretically at some point come back to haunt us as we keep seeing that here and there, but, <laughs> turn <laughs> it hasn't out happened yet, but it, sooner enough it will. Right. So, I mean, I think you bring up a good point and knowing what you know from the institutional side, if you will, and talking about from a retail standpoint about private equity and all the underlying investments and pricing that stuff. Do you think like the average accredited investor, and I'm not talking about one that's a family office, that's also an institution, just somebody who fits the criteria, like you mentioned earlier, doesn't necessarily have the expertise. I mean, can the ordinary retail or accredited investor really enter and invest in private equity and be able to do the necessary due diligence that they should do in order to feel comfortable entering those investments? Or is it that they kind of want to be part of this group that's in the private equity and kind of just take it for granted that that research is being done for them? I think that it really matters who the person is. So for one, private equity, for me, if this was my portfolio, would be a small percentage of my overall total assets, right? So let's Let's say maybe I was comfortable with 10%. So if you think of your total assets, you think I would put 10% in private equity. That amount for me personally would not be enough to get the minimums. <laughs> so I am out of private equity because I can't get to whatever their minimum fundraise right. might be. That said, I grew up on a cattle farm. So let's say I know a lot about technology in raising farm animals. And if I really strongly know a lot about there and I know of a fund starting or technology starting or a group starting, I have connections then I think actually like you may have an edge there. You may not be an investor and you may not know the full landscape. So maybe you need some assistance and need to do some research. But if there's something you know more about than the average person, then really, honestly, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And I do think people should have access to it. Right. And then maybe in that case, you don't need a full diversified portfolio. I also think like you should be willing to lose everything in those investments and be okay with it. You should Fair need enough. to be willing to have a zero return. I think you go back to the Warren Buffett theory, right? Buy what you know kind of thing, right? If you know the cattle farm and it makes sense to you, then you're inherently taking on more risk because it's something that you know. So that's a good thing. So something that's been talked about a lot recently in the news and has been for the last several years is cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. What's your feeling about cryptocurrency and is it part of your overall strategy for the pension system? Yeah. So I have like very limited exposure to working with crypto. I have some exposure with blockchain. I used to consult to a bank on their blockchain strategy about a decade ago. And that was before it was really a household name, but just the beginning. In terms of cryptocurrencies, it's really interesting. Is it a substitute for gold? Is it a speculative asset? One of the problems with cryptocurrency is that many people define what it is differently. And that 
is a huge impediment for being widely accepted as a currency at the current moment. So I might be able to be willing to pay for my latte in crypto this morning, but I'm certainly not going to be willing to accept it on the sale of my house. So I think that it has a long way to go in terms of being a stable asset for our portfolio. Because if you think about it, the way we run asset allocation is we have assumption on returns and volatilities, mostly on volatilities, like how much they move versus the market, because that's more easy to predict. And if I remember correctly, up through the end of December, crypto had like a 30-day 68% vol, which is massive. That's three to four times the size of private equities vol, right? And so for it to have a spot in our portfolio would likely have to be less than 2%. And I don't think we want... 2% allocation, you're saying. 2% allocation of the $20 billion fund. And in that case, I don't think it's worth us doing that. I also don't think that our retirees, who are ultimately my employers and the people I report to, want us to be investing in something that some of them may believe at this point is speculative. But that said, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I think it'll be really interesting to see if the Fed comes out with their own version because I would be curious to see what happens to the rest of the crypto market in that in that case. The other part for institutional investors, which I think a lot of people don't think about, is if we're all moving towards this ESG type of portfolio, crypto is actually not really aligned with that quite yet. It requires a lot of energy, mm-hmm. something like the entire power generation of Chile, I've read. So for that reason, it's probably only going to find its way in bits and pieces. But to be totally honest, we do allocate to some hedge funds that have traded in. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm getting the sense from the way you described it. Do you feel that the jury is still out to some degree on the validity of this as an asset class long term? I will tell you, I feel I have no exposure to crypto. We don't advise clients to invest in crypto. We have conversations about it, but it's something that I feel has... Like you said, I think people use that as an overarching term for a lot of different things. You know, some people are talking about Bitcoin, some people are talking about blockchain, and sometimes you can't delineate what's in between. And I feel that the jury is still out in terms of, and it's been, you said, 10 plus years. And I still think the jury's out to some degree, whether this is going to be something that sticks with us long term. What's your feeling about that? So... Every single time the market has said something's a fad, it generally ends up sticking around for a while. I mean, hedge (laughs) funds are in people's portfolios. I agree with you, though. Some cryptos are like a currency. Some are like an equity. So it really depends. One of my biggest fears is that I opened up my CNBC app the other day, and you can go and click markets. And then it has a bunch of indices and fixed income and rates and equities. And they have a crypto tab. And you look at the top one, it's a couple hundred. Then you see 60 bucks, 80 bucks a share. And there's one that's like 12 cents a share. And I was thinking, someone's going to open this and say, mm-hmm. I can get exposure for 12 cents. I'm going to buy this at 12 cents. Right. There's a reason it's 12 cents. <laughs> right. right. I do have some worry that people are going to try to get exposure just um, at the cheaper levels. And they're all very different, as you point out. Like, do you want an equity exposure? Do you want a currency? Do you want an inflation hedge? I know a lot of people think I'm a big bear on inflation. I think it's coming. I think it's here, actually. And I think uh, there's a lot of people who think it could be an inflation hedge. I think, but your point earlier, the jury is still out. Until everyone agrees what it is, it's very difficult to move forward. Also, for me, again, my Chicago background, I have a hard time investing in things with no intrinsic value yet. Like, I need to see an actual physical store value. Yeah, especially when you hear you have to have it in a vault, you know, lose the code, it's all gone. (laughs) You know, it kind of makes it more mystical than actually realistic. But, you know, unfortunately, we've had some high profile folks that have taken positions and been very vocal about it. So (laughs) it it commands a lot of uh, attention and people are interested in that because of it. 
So listen, let's shift for a minute to personally living in Hawaii. We got to share this with our listeners because I <laughs> I know you were from the East Coast, I think, originally, right? Virginia. Spent, yeah. yeah, spent some time in Chicago. So what has been the biggest change as a result of the move? And what do you enjoy the most of your time in Hawaii now? The biggest change is, is wonderful, but it is a little isolated. So I don't see friends and family very much. That's like the, the negative biggest change. The most positive biggest change is actually I am so isolated. I don't tend to freak out as much as the stuff I saw in the news on the East Coast. I actually think it has made me a better investor. I don't get all caught up in the 24-hour news cycle. So that's really great. The best part about it, actually, on a personal business, living in Hawaii, I've never seen my husband and my kids so happy. Awesome place to raise a kid. There's Baltimore, which is where we were last. was a little bit more challenging. There's always something to do. We're outside all weekend. We live in a tiny little house, but we're never in it. We're always outside. Right. So it's been wonderful. I'm not a person who relaxes almost ever, but if I was ever going to be relaxed, this would be the closest (laughs) that I could ever possibly get. I always said if I could move my practice to Hawaii, (laughs) but have clients on the East Coast, to some degree, it would be a great thing because I think with the hours differential, I could basically work and then be done before... The day even starts, which you know sounds like a great opportunity, but yeah. never came to fruition. Well, not yet. I never say never. So, but that's great. You know, it's good for you that you're in a high stress, high pressure role, but you can walk outside to a sunny, beautiful yeah. view and day just about any day. So that's fantastic. It is great. So, Elizabeth, we end every show with asking all of our guests the same question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Two things. So first, I'm actually on vacation. So I went skiing this morning. Oh, nice. (laughs) It is my uh, favorite thing to do in life. And I went solo. So uh, just a lot of time to think about nothing because you, when you're skiing, you can't think about anything else or you'll die. <laughs> can't stress about anything else. That and um, almost every day, I now, I, hate, I, I wouldn't do it for years. Mike has been trying to get me to do it for 10 years. Finally, I started meditating about six months ago. So I do very short. I can't do it for that long, but about 15 minutes a day. And it just de-stresses me, helps me focus. And so those are the two things I did today. And they've been great. Having a great day. Amazing. So I got to ask, where are you skiing? I am in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Nice. My sweet husband let me take a week off by myself to have a clear my head. And he doesn't love skiing as much as I do. I could do it, did it for seven hours yesterday. (laughs) Oh, wow. So a lot of vertical drop that day yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. I love skiing. I, I, a lot of people don't even know this, but I'll share it now. I spent some time in Denver for a while and it was one of the greatest things was having an hour drive, just going out to the mountains and skiing. And it's a lot different for those of you who skied on the East Coast. It is a much different (laughs) animal skiing Jackson Hole and Denver and Colorado area, West Coast skiing, as they say, versus East Coast. I have a place in Lake Placid, so we ski ice face a lot. And oh, wow. cool. uh, it is ice. Well, it's white face, but we call it ice right. face because a lot of ice out on the East Coast. But I think it makes you a better skier growing up on ice. Actually. It's tough. It's tough. It's much it can make different. you enjoy any condition. You can enjoy Agreed. ice. <laughs> Agreed. The powder is, you go from ice to powder, it's like a life changing experience. You're like, this is what skiing's all about. You have no idea going from ice to powder. So, yeah, definitely. It's been a great pleasure. If people want to learn more about the State Pension Fund and what you guys are doing, where do they go? Yeah, our website is ers.hawaii.gov. 
there's a new newsletter on there. Every quarter, I think I explain what we're doing and where we've come and where we're going. So that's kind of the narrative, but there's a bunch of other performance. All our investments are actually on there too and our allocation. So we're pretty transparent. We Government is generally. Yes, yes. And we will share that in the show notes. And I appreciate your time today, taking time out of your skiing day to spend a little <laughs> bit of time with us. We appreciate it and make it a great day. You too, Larry. Thank you so much. I want to thank Elizabeth Burton for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Elizabeth is responsible for the investment direction and is a fiduciary to the employees' retirement system of the state of Hawaii, which is a huge responsibility. It was great to speak with her and get an understanding from someone on the institutional side of investment management, one who is responsible for $19 billion plus, and see their views on assets outside of the traditional ones. Elizabeth and her public appearances can all be found online, and all the information needed to learn more can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC. A diversified portfolio does not assure a profit or protect against loss in a declining market. With respect to alternative investments in general, you should be aware that returns from some alternative investments can be volatile and you may lose all or a portion of your investment. Additional risks are associated with international investing, such as currency fluctuations, political and economic stability, and differences in accounting standards.